good to be together, and uh, we continue with uh, just <clears throat> our cry and the Lord's invitation, and we saw that in this verse in Revelations 22 and verse 17. Let the Spirit, or the Spirit and the Bride say, come, the one who hears, let anyone who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty, and suddenly it like switches from our cry to God to God's invitation to us. You come. Let anyone who wishes, anyone who wills, take the water of life without cost. And uh, <clears throat> so just to remind you, so... <clears throat> We saw this theme, and it's from the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I give my reward to each person according to what they have done. And we get this sense as we come to the end of the Bible that the one who was there at the beginning is the one who's there at the end. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but then this verse again. The Spirit and the Bride. In other words, that which is in the heart of God Himself and His church say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. So that's us. As we hear, we want to say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And now this is speaking to us. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And we just had that picture of the river flowing as we begin to worship, as we begin to pray. And then towards the end, the very last verses, the one who testifies to these things, in other words, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then a blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we started looking at this, and the first thing we saw is that it's God's invitation that awakens our longing for Him to come. God is offering us the gift of Himself. The water of life is always the giver of life, and that's God Himself. And it's by faith that we receive His life. We receive His love by faith, and so our prayer is not the foundation or the building block or the grounds for a relationship with God. It's an expression of the relationship. But the grounds for a relationship with God is not our prayer, but His grace. And we receive His grace by faith, which means that it, you do, this is not a performance-based relationship. It's a gift-based relationship. Whoever wills, you can take. Whoever hears, invite him to come, even as you accept his invitation to come. And so it's precisely this grace of God that awakens our thirst and our longing. And so what happens when he comes? Well, number one, his love is poured out in power. And I haven't got time to go through all of this, but his ministry gifts that serve and heal and save, 
gifts of evangelism, gifts of healing, gifts of deliverance, gifts of mercy, gifts of justice, gifts of hospitality, gifts of service and kindness. And we sow into the future, Matthew 25, by whatever we do for the least of these in these gifts and ministries and acts of service, we're seeing the king come. In fact, the gifts are called manifestations. In other words, God himself becomes visible through our actions. And so if there's a gift of teaching and you've received that, you end up not thinking about the teacher. You end up thinking, God spoke to me. If there's a gift of prophecy, if there's a gift of healing, you're not walking around thinking about the person through whom the gift came. You know they couldn't do that. You know God did that because God has come. And of course, his kingdom comes. Isaiah 35 verse 1 says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. Shout for joy. And, and the story goes on and it says, Strengthen feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. And say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Now, what's this got to do with kingdom? Well, his kingdom is battling against every other kingdom, every other dominion, and ultimately against the dominion of darkness. Every time human beings try to take the place of God, instead of rule on behalf of them, they want to rule instead of him. And that's always going to create a beast, a monster. That's how the Bible pictures our efforts of our dominion. So what happens when his kingdom comes? His kingdom comes to save. Let those who've got fearful hearts hear your God will come. And yes, there will be vengeance. Yes, he will break out against the things that stand for what he stands for. There's going to be conflict between the kingdoms. And that conflict is now. It happens in your life and mine every single day. Because he's coming and he's coming against the things they would stand against him. And so he's bringing that deliverance. He's bringing that freedom. He's breaking the yoke. He's coming to save. When God comes, we also find rest for our souls. We, we saw that in Matthew 11. And when he comes, our unity is strengthened. We saw this again and again, for example, in the book of Acts. We know that from many uh, testimonies as well. So, if that's his invitation awakens our longing. Secondly, what happens when he comes? Now, let's just talk about this longing at, that leads us to fasting. Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples, verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting. And some of the people came and asked, Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, 
but yours are not. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day or in that season, they will fast. So the time is coming when it's right to fast. Jesus is speaking of the, the time in which his followers will be keenly aware of his absence. And so, yes, his kingdom came when he was on earth, but his kingdom is coming now through his people, and ultimately one day his kingdom will fully and finally come. And in that gap, we find ourselves with this cry, with this longing. The bridegroom isn't here in the way we want him to be here. The bridegroom has been taken from us. The bridegroom feels far away. Many of the parables Jesus uh, spoke had this same metaphor of longing, of distance, of absence. Jesus says during this season, in other words, historically between the time he ascended into heaven and his full and final return when every eye will see him, is a season from time to time that we fast. Now, it's not permanent in the sense of the fast, but the season endures. So how do we know when to fast? We listen. And we normally do that in community. We find appropriate times of our year in which it's a good time to fast. So I was cycling and I met a bunch of new people on the road yesterday. Never met them before. And as one does when you can't breathe, you're having this in-depth conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and so people were asking me about cycling next week. And I thought, oh, okay, well, here's a little opportunity. I said, well, I'll be fasting next week. Our, uh, our church, uh, actually, I said it like this. Our church will be fasting, uh, longing to see God at work. And then I said, you know, a whole bunch of people think January is a great time to fast because it's a good, good reset from what they did in December. And so there are seasons when you can fast. And they were like, oh, wow, da 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 and a whole bunch of questions that, that someone would, uh, would even want to do this. And so <clears throat> fasting can take many forms. As we heard earlier, you can fast from food. You can fast from a certain meal every day. Maybe you're going to fast from the one that takes the most time to prepare so it gives you the most time to pray. You might fully fast from food. Um, for me, it makes sense if I'm fasting from food to fast from exercise or else my week will be cut short uh, rather dramatically. Um, for some of you, it may be treats that you're going to fast. For some of you media or tech, full stop, different kinds of media that can swallow your attention. Why? Because we want to redirect our focus. We want to we redeem time. And with that time that we have bought back, we want to give it 
its reward and its focus. We want to spend that time well. And so whether it's the routine activities or whether it's the things that could potentially just distract or even they're a little toxic. And, and they have an effect on you that when you think about it, I don't enjoy that. I endure that. But somehow whatever I'm doing leaves me feeling like I should keep doing it. It's called an addiction. And so this becomes an opportunity to redirect my time in ways that is really helpful because then fasting also then provides focus. You know, there's nothing like a grumbling tummy to remind you that you not should be going to the fridge, but that you're leaning into God, that you're hungry for Him, that you're thirsty for Him, that you're hoping to see him come. You're hoping to see him come and save. Your God will come. He will come to save you. And so fasting reminds us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. They will be filled. They'll be content. Gosh, when I think of all the unrighteousness around, imagine just being able for a moment to be content and satisfied in contemplating the righteousness and the goodness and the justice and the perfections of God. I take time to take my eyes off the obvious problems and look to the one who is my hope. And so when I take my eyes, when I allow my heart to move towards the God, when, when the bridegroom's absence captures me, fasting allows for feasting on God. I find my attention redirected towards the one who is truly good, truly gracious, truly righteous, truly merciful. And as I begin to look to him in anticipation, wait on him, long for him, so I find my heart, as the psalmist says, is stirred by a noble theme. Philippians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes, so finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever captures admiration is excellent, praiseworthy. Think on these things. You know, there's no better way than to do that than obeying Colossians 3. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Let go of the earthly things. Fasting allows feasting because it allows focus.
And of course, fasting without prayer is then missing the point. I mean, it's just a hunger strike. It's the dumbest thing ever. Why would you want to stop those good things? And they are good things. Richly to be enjoyed, Paul writes in 1 Timothy. Why would you want to stop some lovely, wonderful things? Because there are other things you want to remind yourself of that really matter. And so we have a season. We have a time. Now, of course, not all of us are going to be able to do this. And if you've got questions, you know, my cat is hypoglycemic. Is that it, babe? Yeah. Just found out this weekend. And so now she's got to eat like there's no tomorrow. Now, that does not bother her in the least. <laughs> and it also doesn't bother Cindy, who uh, happily shows love through food. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about fasting in a family. You know, you heard earlier, don't, you know, don't make this a guilt trip. Well, not too much. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we do want to be aware. And it's interesting. Yes, uh, from earliest times, Christians have, for example, when someone has arrived at their door unannounced, made them a meal and shared the meal with them in the midst of a fast. Because the nature of relationship, our horizontal relationships are such that unless you've established the paradigm and people understand how that works, people get wounded by my spirituality. And so I don't use the excuse of being spiritual to somehow become unloving. So what does this look like? Take extra care of your relationships during this time. And, uh, and, and there may be some in the family who can't fast food, and they might be fasting something else while they pray. Maybe some of them are not fasting at all. You know, one of the things is that eating together creates communion. And so there's this time that you get to be together as a family and you can check in and unofficially or officially find out what the highs and lows are and, and how things are going with one another. And you take eating out of the equation and you've suddenly lost this major lubricant in the way the family shows its love. So just be aware of that and remember to show the love. And then, I haven't got it on the slide, but if you do need to check with, you know, a medical person about your particular case of fasting, most of us could do with a good dose um, for medical reasons. Um, but, I, I, you know, th I don't want this to be uh, yeah, a lack of wisdom in this space. And so we have an opportunity to bring focus together with our united prayer. Okay, so we want to open the well. We want to get together around that, what feels like a big stone. We want to get to the living water. And we want to lift the stone and we want to dive in and drink. One of the ways of helping us to do that <clears throat> is to make this a season of fasting. So <clears throat> unless you're a single person, don't decide on it unilaterally. Remember that there's a space and a discussion 
and just talking about what this could look like for different members in, in the family, I think would be very helpful. So now we want to just move into, let the Spirit and the bride say come. Let the Spirit and the bride. The bride is praying what the Spirit prays. The Spirit is praying what the bride prays. What the bride wants, the Spirit wants. What the Spirit wants, the bride wants. The bride is praying with and in the Spirit. The longing that is in the Spirit of God, the heart of God, has become the longing inside and the fuel of the prayers of God's people. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You know, this is just after the armor of God in which all that is protecting us on the outside, as it were, and the head, and, the, and then he says, but inside, let this be in you, that your prayers for all occasions, on all, all, in every circumstance, are in the Spirit. So what does this mean? When together with the Spirit, we in the church are saying, come. Well, firstly, to pray in the Spirit is to meet with the person of God, the Holy Spirit. John 4, Jesus explains to the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit. Now, that's the, that's the realm of God. But also we discover 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And so, in a Trinitarian, in other words, God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And they're not just modes of one God. They are three amazing, distinct persons whom we know and honor. And we know them through one another, and we get to know them better because each one keeps introducing the others to us. You can't get to know Jesus without coming to know and love Abba and Holy Spirit. And you're never going to get close to Holy Spirit unless you're being taken and immersed into him by Jesus and you're receiving him as the gift of Abba. And unless Abba shows you the Son and gives you to the Son, as it were, because you're his bride. You're the, the Father giving the bride to the Son. And unless you know that the Spirit is the gift of the Father. In other words, as I'm stepping into that Trinitarian space, I am in the Spirit because I meet the person of the Holy Spirit. And when I'm in that space, God is spirit. I am in the realm of God. Now, I'm not sure how else to say that, but that your worldview might need some serious review. If you think that the, what we call the created order, what others call nature, is all that there is. That materialism defines the sum total of reality. And so to be in praying in, praying with the Spirit of Jesus, I'm entering, engaging the realm of God. And more than that, I'm allowing that which is in the realm of God 
to come to me and to come through me. And so whether it's grace or whether it's justice or whether it's mercy or whether it's compassion and kindness, I am entering the realm of God, but the realm of God is entering this world through me. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer quotes a psalm and says, Here I am, you have prepared a body for me, and I have come to do your will. God is still looking for people with bodies who will do his will on the earth. Why? Because it's precisely that the realm of God, as I begin to open myself up, begins to come to me. And whether that's firm, concrete actions or prophetic words, pictures, visions, dreams, prayers, hopes, songs, uh, you know, whatever it may be, as we read in Ephesians 5, people are going to start coming up with spiritual songs. Why? Because they're in the realm of God and then the realm of God starts entering this realm. And that which is possibly mystery starts becoming evident and obvious where we are. But ultimately, and forgive the long sentence, to pray in the Spirit and to pray with the Spirit is let the shape, the form, the content, the motivation, and the triggers of my praying submit to the leadership, direction, power, motivation, and outcomes of the Holy Spirit. I'm literally saying, Holy Spirit, you pray through me. I want to pray in the Spirit. Now, let me unpack this a little bit more. As we pray with and in the Spirit, we are going to find that the things that matter most to God are going to define our prayers. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, one of the things that will endure forever, well, three of them, we see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And so if I'm going to be in the Spirit of God, I'm going to be in faith. I'm going to be in hope. I'm going to be in love. So let me unpack this very briefly. It means I'm going to pray in faith. Old school writer, a guy called Ian e. Bounds, said this when faith ceases to pray, faith ceases to live. Prayerlessness is telling God, I don't need you. It's faith in myself. Prayerfulness is by its very definition an acknowledgement, I am not God. I can't do this all. I am completely dependent upon you. And by the way, I'm okay with that. Because faith has a DNA of three things. Knowledge, in other words, there's information that you're going to process. Revelation, you're going to take on board and receive and believe. But faith is also trust. I trust in the person of God. And so God, I need you and I'm okay with that because I trust you. I trust you deeply. Notice that faith then is not, and faith in prayer is not a technique for me to get what I want out of God. 
It's a place in which I surrender to what he wants through me. Not my will. Your will be done, said Jesus, before he paid the ultimate price of faith and love. Faith, praying in faith, is also brave. Faith tells mountains it's time to move. Faith tells giants their days are numbered because as with David, they have defied the armies and the people of the living God. And so this young David runs straight towards the giant Goliath, and he says, Today I feed your carcass to the birds of the air, because you have defied the armies and the people of the living God. Faith is not just wishing. Faith is courage on fire with conviction. So we pray in faith. We also pray in hope. I found, given the news of the days and this week, how many missiles have flown around parts of the world, whether it's the Korean Peninsula, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in the Ukraine. And you read the news and you're wondering, like, are we teetering right on the brink? I found myself needing to make this point again and again in several different circumstances, especially in my own quiet time. <laughs> the hope, sorry, I didn't finish the point on faith. Faith is knowledge. You receive the content of revelation and you believe it. It's trust in the nature and person of God, and it is expectation. Biblical faith has an expectation. It's, it's expecting something, which now leads us into hope. That's clever, hey? Except I went ahead of the point. But hope <laughs> is not optimism. Biblical hope. See, optimism is believing that they won't pull the trigger. Optimism is believing that bad people won't do bad things. Optimism says we're all going to be fine until we're not. Until someone pushes the button, until someone attacks, until someone lies, deceives, cheats, or whatever it is. Optimism believes that bad things won't happen. Hope is far more honest than that. Hope admits, laments, and confronts pain and disappointments honestly, bravely. Hope looks at injustice and says, I see you. You break my heart, but you won't win. You see, hope is being convinced that God's story will finish just as he promised it will. So, Revelations chapter 11 and verse 15, and 
I haven't got time to give you the whole context of the book of Revelation. The fact it's like an orchestra with many bar uh, things being played simultaneously. So don't try and read the book of Revelation as a sequence. It won't make sense. It's the same story repeated again and again and again about four or five times. But as in one of those cycles... It's being, the, the same story is being brought to a close. And the story starts at a very human level and goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Normally, as the story is about to begin, we're reintroduced again and again to the Lamb, to His people, and to the break-in of the kingdom at the end of history. Now, it's not that there are four or five break-ins at the end of history. That's confusing. Then you're trying to read it linear. It's that you're getting the story at one level, a very human level, then at an economic and military level, then you're getting it at a kind of deeply political stroke spiritual level, then you're getting it at a complete demonic level. How the kingdom is going to come against every form and realm. And at one point when it's dealing with human kingdoms, it says this, and there were the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven that said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. If you want hope, that's where you pin your hope, that the story of God will end the way he says it will. Therefore, if you're in Myanmar and you're facing martyrdom, you're not hoping against hope. Of course, you're praying for God's protection, but your hope is not that they won't find you. Your hope is in the one who is far greater than that regime right now. If you're living on optimism, your faith will be in very short supply very soon. But if you're living in the conviction that nothing and no one, no kingdom, no power will subvert the ultimate story and victory of God, then you can act within history, in its brokenness, with hope, again and again, in spite of all the odds. We're deeply honest. And yet we are not without God and without hope in the world. That helps us grieve, 1 Thessalonians. We don't grieve like the world does. We grieve, but we're not without God. We're not without hope. And so when I pray, I don't pray as if God isn't there or he's losing. I pray in a spirit of hope. So I'm not going to pray my fear. Sadly, for many of us, prayer is a place where we worry our thoughts. And then we wonder why praying is so hard. Instead of letting prayer become a place where we join our hearts to the longings of the Spirit. Let the Spirit and the Bride say come. Their hearts are one. No longer praying that God will fix my circumstance or supply whatever it may be. Of course we ask for our daily bread, but my prayer and my faith do not depend upon the success of my amens. I trust him. And I live in hope. And then I pray in love. I pray because I am loved. 
I pray because God has taken the initiative to show the world what love is. God has proved, demonstrated his love in this. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can pray from the furthest pigsty on earth. You see, God didn't wait until I made it home and washed myself and put on the robe and found a ring and cleaned my sandals and provided the fattened calf. He had all that ready. The Father had all of that ready. All that was needed was a longing for the Father's house in the place of your brokenness. And if in the place of your brokenness, you will reach to the living God, our God will save because he loves. God has proved his love for us while we were sinners, while we were in the far country, while we were in the pigsty. He sent his son to die for us. And you know, when I know that I am loved, then amazing things can happen. That's what happened for Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, all the people were being baptized. Jesus is baptized too. <laughs> as he's baptized, it says this, as he was praying. Oh, Lord, let it, let it be again this week as we are praying. As he was praying. Heaven opened. The Holy Spirit came down. Holy Spirit came. Holy Spirit came. Descended on him bodily in the form of a dove. And the voice said from him, You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. When I receive the grace of God, I receive the gift of that voice. And I pray not from a place of fear, not from a place of anxiety, not from a place of trying to control the world in insecurity. I pray in faith. I pray in hope. I pray in love.